love learning new stuff, and especially when it comes from my favorite news source. That's right, today's podcast intro is brought to you by the letters NHL. There is an important real estate lesson we can learn from our friends in the National Hockey League. Now, last month, Golden Knights fans losing their minds because the Golden Knights had acquired the rights to Nikita Gusev. That's not the part they were upset about. They were really excited about that. If you've never heard of Nikita Gusev, well, you're not alone. He's never played in the NHL before, but he was the number one goal scorer in the Continental Hockey League, the KHL, which is a world-class hockey league. It's uh, it based in Russia. The guy was absolutely amazing. Uh, just an incredible goal scorer, and the Knights were eager to add, them, add him to their roster. And they acquired his rights uh, just before the playoffs, but were unable to come to terms with him over the summer. So they ended up trading him to the New Jersey Devils. And you're probably wondering, what did the Knights get for such a world-class player? Uh, let's see, they got a second-round draft pick uh, and a coupon to Subway, and then that's it. That's all they got for this world-class player. On the surface, this looks like a horrible trade, and that's because it's a really horrible trade, which then begs the question, why? Imagine for a moment that you have an opportunity to purchase a $5 million property for only $1 million. You could turn around and sell it the next day and make a $4 million profit. And that is an amazing opportunity. It's also a total non-starter if you don't have a million dollars. And that was the problem that the Knights had. It wasn't that they didn't have money, they didn't have cap space. And so the Knights realizing that they weren't going to be able to come to terms with Gusev and offer him the contract that he deserved. They gave him an opportunity to talk with New Jersey, figuring that they would at least try and get something rather than nothing. And so that's how the Knights ended up with two future draft picks and uh, I think a high five from the general manager of the New Jersey Devils. New Jersey Devils got a world-class player, excited to see him hit the ice. But that was not the byline. If you read deeper, you would have found that. But what was mostly being reported was what a horrible trade the Knights had made. And that was the part that the fans were focusing on. Well, the same holds true in real estate. A lot of what we do as agents is not readily apparent. And most of that is our fault because as a profession, we're absolutely terrible about talking about what it is that we actually do. And an agent's job is to be your representative in the largest financial transaction that you're likely to make. That's the job, it's representation. There are contracts for that. If you're, if you're a seller, it's a listing agreement. If you're a buyer, it's called a buyer's brokerage agreement. But those are the contracts that create agency. That's what's in the law. There is nothing in the law that says a real estate agent is there to open doors and be a tour guide. That's not an agent's job, but we're terrible, terrible at conveying that to the public. In this episode of Real Estate for the Rest of Us, we'll talk about how to interview a real estate agent so that you end up with a real estate pro who's going to represent your best interest and not a real estate hack who's looking out for their best interest. And did you know the event planning industry has something in common with the real estate industry? I promise you, you will probably not look at the real estate industry the same way again. And in pro tips, the two most important words when you go under contract, Due diligence. I'll tell you what it is, what it's about, why it's important for buyers and for sellers, and what you should be doing during that time to ensure a smooth transaction. All that and more on real estate for the rest of us. It's 
the podcast that can be used as a flotation device in the event of a water landing. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Mike Duran. And what does the event planning business have to do with the real estate business, or more correctly, what do they have in common? Uh, if you've ever hired uh, a wedding planner, or um, or you've done a court, you've had to organize a corporate event, and you've worked with a planner, that planner is generally hiring other people as well to to come in. And, and so you're actually working with the team. You've got one point of contact, but they are working with the team. And so they actually, that planner is oftentimes in competition with some of the very people that they're hiring. So for example, that planner may hire a florist, but that florist may also offer event planning. So in reality, they're competitors, but they're working together. And that's what the event planning business has in common with the real estate industry. So you have all these real estate agents who are competitors, even agents within the same office are competitors, and yet our entire profession is predicated on cooperation. So there's something for you for trivia night, but uh, that is that actually is uh, an important insight into the industry is that we are all competitors with each other, but we also at the same time cooperate with each other. Uh, I will say that in my own experience uh, in the industry and the profession, I would say 99% of the agents that I've worked with in the past, I would work with again in a heartbeat. Very professional, hardworking, uh, fair, honest, uh, yeah, great experiences. So in today's podcast, we'll talk about how to find that great agent because let's be honest, there's uh, a lot of other stories out there where people haven't had great experiences with real estate agents. I'll tell you how to, we're gonna talk about how to interview an agent, what questions you should be asking, and how to identify an agent who's just giving you a sales pitch. But before we go into that, I wanna take a trip down memory lane back to 2005. There is a cautionary tale that we can learn from a partnership between Motorola and Apple. Remember in 2005, uh, there weren't any smartphones then. So mobile phones were just coming uh, into their, had just hit their stride and they were getting more features on them, but they were still a little ways out from becoming uh, what we would know today as a smartphone. Motorola was one of the big players in the mobile phone industry and they had a lot of successes and they formed this partnership with Apple they came up with this uh, new phone called the Motorola Rocker. Really all they had done was taken one of their top selling phones and they kind of bastardized it to accommodate this brand new app called iTunes. iTunes didn't have a big library. You had this device that really wasn't developed initially for iTunes. So the user interface was really clunky. It only held about 50 songs. It wasn't, it wasn't great. It was really odd that Apple would even put their name on it. Anyway, it didn't sell very well, and I'm pretty sure it was short-lived. Motorola didn't really make any money off of it. I'm pretty sure they lost money off of it. So then it begged the question, why would Apple put their name on such a mediocre product? Well, about a year later, in one of their big keynotes, and probably one of the worst-kept secrets in the industry, they announced the iPhone. And it did not disappoint Unless you were Motorola, if you were Motorola, then you were very disappointed. And they weren't, uh, actually, they weren't just disappointed. They were really pissed off. They later charged that Apple used them. They used that partnership uh, for the rocker that they had lost money on, that they used that in order to develop the iPhone. They were correct. And that's why Apple formed that partnership. They, they didn't need Motorola to develop the iPhone. They already 
had the iPhone. They know how to create a computer, obviously, and they were creating essentially a very small handheld computer. They needed Motorola to solve certain engineering issues so they could figure out how to marry that computer to a cell phone. And that's what they that's what that partnership was all about. So it wasn't about the rocker, it wasn't about this mediocre product. It was so that Apple could learn how to essentially develop their own cell phone. Well, last month, Amazon and Realogy announced an alliance, uh, which is different than the partnership that uh, Apple and Motorola had done because they they got together to create a product. Uh, This is more of an alliance, but it's uh, Amazon and Realogy. And if you're not familiar with Realogy, you are almost certainly familiar with one of their franchises. They are the parent company of uh, Sotheby's International, uh, ERA, Coldwell Banker, um, some other you know high-profile brand, great great brands, great franchises, um, instantly recognizable. So the partnership is uh, that Amazon is uh, going to develop this uh, this program for buyer potential home buyers, so they can go through Amazon. Amazon will then refer them over to Realogy or to a Realogy agent, and if you, that buyer ends up purchasing a home through that Realogy agent, they can then qualify for up to $5,000 in credits from Amazon. So you just bought a house and now you need to go get stuff and you always need stuff when you just moved into a new uh, into a new home. And so Amazon is um, banking on you doing it with them. They're like, hey, we'll give you some, some credits here and then uh, you know do all your shopping with us. I think this partnership is going to be short-lived. And uh, I will go on the record as saying that uh, I believe this will be short-lived. And if I'm wrong, then we can come back to episode six, interview with an agent, say, Mike, you totally screwed up in that podcast. So I've said previously that I don't predict the market, but I will make a prediction about um, the industry. And I think this uh, alliance will be short-lived. Amazon doesn't need Realogy, and they could pay for Realogy right now uh, just by writing a check or with the loose change that they have in the cushions uh, in Jeff Bezos' living room. Realogy is worth about $500 million, and it's that's not uh, out of reach for Amazon. They could purchase them tomorrow. They have not been shy about saying they want to get into the real estate industry. What that looks like, we don't know, but I think that Amazon is going to use this partnership to glean some insights that they couldn't normally get just by pilfering talent. And so they may be looking at systems. They may be looking at, who knows, they may be exploring all sorts of options. But for what this partnership is, is really just Amazon selling leads to Realogy. And that's not any different than Zillow's model. Zillow sells your information uh, in the form of their premier agent program. They, They take buyer leads and they sell them to uh, to agents. And now Amazon's wanting to get into that. The problem that I foresee for Amazon is that they are a trusted brand. Selling personal information has not gone over well for Facebook, who really for the past decade has been a trusted brand, but not for the last 18 months. And it's been scandal after scandal. Uh, the consumer, you know, consumers have been pushing back and they're saying, hey, our privacy is important. Um, I don't see this being uh, a huge benefit for Amazon. The The thing for them, at least on the surface, is that they're offering credits uh, for people who go through their home buying program and then they'll connect you with a Realogy agent. And uh, and so the, the upside for Realogy is, is obvious there because you're using one of their agents. But for Amazon, their thing is, hey, look, uh, you know, you just moved into the house. You need to do some shopping. Come shop it uh, with us. 
people are going to shop with Amazon anyway. So they really don't need this partnership. I think there's more here than what they're presenting. I don't think it's going to be um, a long alliance. I think it's going to be very short-lived. And uh, so I'm going on the record right now and saying that. So, you know, is Amazon going to get into the real estate business? You know, like I said, they haven't been shy about saying that they uh, that that's the direction they're going. And we don't know what that's going to look like. What I can tell you is that for right now, still need to work with a human being. And if Amazon does get into the real estate industry, they essentially are becoming another brokerage. Now, they're instantly recognizable, but just having a big name doesn't make you an instant success in the real estate industry. And so, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, very respected company. Um, and, and then locally here in Southern Nevada, uh, I, I know some great agents who work for Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, but it's not like Warren Buffett is holding your open house, okay? So you've got a great brand name. And for a listing agent, brand recognition is a great way to grab attention. It's a great way to try and get new listings. But for the consumer, if you're on the buyer side, I don't know a single buyer that I've ever worked with that was like, hey, look, that house is really great, but you know, they're really not with the big name brokerage. I don't know if I want to make an offer on it or not. For buyer, they don't care. Buyers can care less which brokerage is representing the buyer side. There is a bigger problem that I see in our industry, and it's not new. This has been going on a long time. In real estate, there is a tendency for agents to look for that silver bullet that, you know, this is the magic solution. And you look at the seminars that are marketed towards real estate agents, you know, every, every single, you know, person that's putting on a seminar has that magic solution. And right now that magic solution is technology. And, you know, obviously tech is very big and it's very trendy and there's doing some amazing stuff, but there is this reliance on technology that this is going to be that magic bullet uh, in real estate. And it's, it's important and it's an important part of the tool bag and it's important for uh, agents to understand and to utilize the technology and continue to grow and develop. But, you know, look, just because my refrigerator talks to my toaster, it doesn't mean that I'm a better chef. And so just because I have all these different tools and apps doesn't make me a better agent. And so there's another part of this that seems to be getting left by the wayside which now brings us to how do you find a good agent? I was recently reading a post from uh, an agent on uh, one of the groups, one of the Facebook groups that I'm a member of. She had, uh, she was upset about a, a, a review that she had received from some clients and she felt like she had done a really good job. And, you know, she said it was a, a what she would consider a normal transaction. And it, they weren't really upset with her per se. I mean, I, I can see where she may have been hurt by the review, but what struck me was they said, we we worked with a real estate agent because we didn't have any other choice. And um, man, that just, um, that is really, that I could see where anybody would uh, would kind of be hurt by that. And look, I, I get it. I mean, as a profession, I think real estate agents pull somewhere uh, between attorneys and car salesmen when it comes to trust. And, you know, and in some cases, rightfully so. I mean, I've heard plenty of um, horror stories with agents that, you know, maybe didn't have their client's best interest at heart and they were mostly looking out for themselves or maybe they were there for the sale or maybe they were just 
and I used to, I, I don't mean to, to be mean about this, but maybe they were just incompetent. And, you know, in our profession, once you're licensed, you can be licensed for 10 minutes and start writing contracts. I mean, there is no, there's no apprenticeship period. There's no, uh, you know, we have a year in Nevada, we have a year to do post licensing and, and that varies by, by state. But what is consistent throughout all 50 states is that as soon as you have your license, you can begin writing contracts. And I can't think of any profession where you can just jump right in uh, the moment that you're licensed. So it doesn't matter how much experience you have. It doesn't matter if you're being supervised, uh, anything like that. Now, uh, ultimately, at least where I'm at, ultimately, uh, the broker is responsible for uh, for the transaction, which is how they, they kind of regulate that. But uh, again, even that kind of varies a bit. But I was really struck by this comment that, uh, you know, these people uh, felt like they, they had no other choice other than to work with a real estate agent. And I'll, I'll just say right now, you don't. You don't have to work with a real estate agent. Um, if you are selling your own home, um, that's perfectly legal in every state. You can sell your own home um, and you can act as your own representative. And if you're buying, you can be unrepresented. You don't have to work with a real estate agent, but I would highly recommend it. And no different than if you were to go into court. Do you need an attorney? No, you can represent yourself, but not recommended. So let's start with some broad brushstrokes. And we're, we're going to put agents into one of two categories, agents that are sales driven and agents that are service driven. And my recommendation for anybody anywhere is to work with an agent who is service oriented. If you are on the buyer side, you don't need to be sold anything, right? I, you know, buyers have access to the MLS. Buyers don't need to be sold anything. And quite frankly, the consumer today is more intelligent, more sophisticated, and they have better resources than they've ever had. So the days of an agent walking into a house and saying, you know, visualize your furniture in this room, those days are over. That's not what you need an agent for. What you need an agent for if you are buying is for representation, to walk you through the contract, to do the market analysis for you, to, you know, help you determine, you know, is the price that the sellers are asking, is it a fair price? Um, you know, is the home going to appraise? There's all sorts of questions. What inspections should we do? Have the sellers provided all the correct documentation? Is the title clear? There's all sorts of things that a buyer's agent can help with that have absolutely nothing to do with sales. So work with an agent who's service driven. If you are on the listing side and you're looking for an agent to list your home, my two cents, sales today are less about sales and more about marketing. And sales and marketing are not the same thing. So you wanna find an agent who is who knows how to market a property versus an agent who's just a salesperson. Because let's face it, it consumers today, their BS meter is at an all-time high. And like I was just saying, the American the consumer today is better educated, better informed, a lot more sophisticated than ever before. So you don't need an agent who's gonna be salesy. You need an agent who can market your home and get you top dollar. But that's only one half of the equation. The other part of it is helping you achieve your goals. And so if you have an agent who is service driven, they can help, their goal is to help you achieve your goals. So for me, one of the easiest ways to tell if an agent is sales driven or if they're service driven is to listen to what they have to say or to listen to the questions that they're asking you. So 
an agent who is sales driven tends to talk about themselves, how much volume they have. I mean, you know, if you're looking to buy a house, do you really care if they're working with a hundred other people? That just means they have less time for you. If you're looking to sell a home, do you really care that they have, you know, a hundred listings? Because that's probably less attention that you're going to get. So what you care about is, are they listening to you? Do they ask you about your goals or are they mostly just talking about themselves? Now you should expect that any agent is going to talk about their credentials, you know, what experience they have, what things they have to offer, but they should be talking about those things and how they align with your goals. So for example, if you are looking to list your home with an agent, they may be talking about, uh, you know, like their, their web presence and how much web traffic they get that aligns with your goals. If they have a website that gets a lot of web, you know, web traffic, then that's more attention on your home. Or perhaps they're using um, 3D technology so that they can do a 3D tour of your home. Those are things that align with your goals. If you're on the buyer side uh, and you have an agent who's very familiar with the area and very familiar with the schools and um, and you know, you're, you've got kids and your big thing is the schools and they know those things, that, that's an agent who could be a very good fit for you. When you speak with an agent, are they resorting to scare tactics? Are they talking about, you know, hey, you got to sell your house right now because the market's going to crash or, you know, things like that. We can't predict the market. We don't, if, if that comes out of anybody's mouth, uh, red flag right there, interview over and move on to the next agent. But, you know, if somebody who's like, hey, you got to sign, you know, you got to sign the documents today. Let's get your house on the market this week. And, you know, they're ready to go. That's great. It's great to have enthusiasm. But don't mistake enthusiasm for just getting your house onto the market so they can get you under contract when their interest is, I just want to get you under contract so that nobody else gets you under contract. Maybe right now isn't the best time to to put your house on the market. I had a client earlier this month that they wanted to get their home on the market. We had already drawn up all of the documents and they were getting ready to sign. One of the last things they needed to do was to just contact the tenant and um, and set some expectations for showings. And I just wanted to introduce myself and address any concerns that they had. And when I spoke to the tenant, it was immediately clear that they were not going to be cooperative uh, when it came to showing the house. And they only had three weeks left on the lease. I called my client back and I said, hey, look, um, it doesn't sound like we're gonna get much cooperation from the tenant. Let's just wait three weeks. We'll put the house on the market once they're out and you know we'll come we'll start out on the right foot. And yeah, would I have loved to have gotten the house on the market three weeks ago? For sure. But was that in my client's best interest? Probably not. Almost certainly not. And so that's how why I advise them to let's just wait three weeks. Now, in that three weeks, could they have gone and listed with somebody else? Sure. They had they had interviewed other agents. They told me after I had met with them. Uh, they told me that they had interviewed other agents, and that's great. I always expect, always expect that people are going to interview more than one agent. So yeah, we waited. Now the tenant's out. We've got a vacant property. We're going to have a killer photo shoot, and this is what was in the best interest of my client, not getting the house on the market three weeks ago, which would have been in my best interest. So enthusiasm is great. Call to action is great, but sometimes doing things right now is not always in your best interest. And so, but, you know, I, there should be a reason for it. And, um, you know, if you 
are looking to buy and you've got a pretty decent down payment, but you've got a few things to clear up on your credit report, fine. Take a couple of weeks and clear up those things and then you know go back to your lender and get that pre-approval letter or or if you started out with a pre-qualification letter and you still need to do a couple of steps to get the pre-approval letter, so no no harm in looking, but you know the focus should probably be on getting that pre-approval letter. So you know again that it's that's where it's easy to identify an agent who's giving advice that's best for you or advice that's best for them. All right, so our agent has passed the smell test and they we've determined that they are a service-oriented agent. Next step. Do they work for a team? Um, and I've got, I have mixed feelings on teams. Um, I've been on a team. I currently don't work on a team other than I work for a small boutique brokerage. There's um, seven of us and my broker is a working broker. It's great to know that I've got people that I can rely on. So if I need to leave town or something comes up or there's some emergency that I've got somebody else who's familiar with my files, with my clients, with my transactions that can um, jump in where needed. So in that sense, yes, you you absolutely want to work with somebody who um, has backup. So you can talk to a, an agent who is solo and they still have another agent that they work with um, as backup. So that'll be one of the questions you'd ask. I can't tell you how many times in the last 12 months uh, I have either talked, you know, had a colleague or a friend or an acquaintance who their agent like was gone through the, you know, in the middle of the transaction and, you know, or they couldn't be reached or, you know, whatever. And look, we're as agents, we're human beings. We're not robots. We have, you know, we have families, we have a life, we go on vacation sometimes, but when you go on vacation, you should still have a backup. And uh, I, I have personally on, I'm, I've had three transactions where the agent has left the country in the middle of the transaction, but, and there's nothing wrong with that, but has been completely unreachable. Now look, I've had clients on the other side of the world where I've been able to, you know, communicate with them on a moment's notice. No problem. It's the 21st century. There aren't too many places that you can go where you can't get in touch or still be in touch, but at the very least you should have a backup. So if you're working with a solo agent, great. Uh, if you're working with someone that's on a team, I've been on a team before too, and teams are great. Uh, you know, you, you are typically working with several people, but if you're working with, if you're talking to an agent that um, maybe they're kind of a, a prominent name in town or whatever, you should clarify with them if you're going to be working with them or being represented by them, or if you're gonna be work, if you're gonna be handed off to somebody else that's on the team. And I don't mean to say handed off, you know, in a demeaning kind of way. Um, you know, it could be that they're the face of the team, but really these other people that are on the team are, are still doing a lot of the work, a lot of the heavy lifting behind the scenes. Some teams have uh, an agent who's dedicated just to, to sh just to showing homes. And, uh, you know, they're a showing agent and, and that's their job is just to go and open doors for you. And um, what's great about somebody like that is they're usually available uh, on very short notice. But, you know, those are the questions you should ask. You know, are, are, are they going to be representing you or is somebody else on the team going to be representing you? There are advantages to working with an agent who's part of a team and, uh, you know, that you do have more than one person that you can speak to. You know, it, it, there's advantages to working with a you know an agent who's solo because you tend to get their undivided attention. 
pros and cons to both. And I'm not saying go out of your way so you can interview an agent who, you know, is a sole, you know, is on their own versus an agent and compare them to an agent who's on a team. It's just, if you happen to talk to three agents and two of them are on teams and one of them isn't great, you've got a comparison. You may end up talking to three agents who are, uh, you know, just flying solo. So nothing wrong with that, but I would definitely ask, you know, about backup, about, you know, uh, if things come up, if they're traveling, if they're unavailable. Uh, I was sitting in Starbucks the other day. There was an agent at the table next to me talking to some potential home uh, or new clients. It, it was obvious they were meeting for the first time. And, you know, he's going through his schedule with them and he's telling them like, OK, well, it sounded like he's got a full time job or, he, you know, he's got a nine to five job. And he's like, OK, so we can look at homes between, you know, this time and this time. That didn't sound terribly convenient for the buyers, especially if they have days off, like if they've got Tuesday off or, um, you know, or they they want to do the weekends They're like, oh, you know, my kids play soccer. So Saturdays are kind of taken up. And it's like, look, I, I can appreciate that. My kid plays soccer, too. We just kind of work around around the schedules but you know if you're talking to somebody who's already telling you how unavailable they are it, it maybe it might be time you know might be a polite pass on that one and just move on to somebody else i've got nothing against agents who are part-time agents or who have another job uh, especially for new agents it's really hard to just dive in 100 percent as a new agent a lot of people a lot of agents will transition and you know they're holding on to the the uh their previous job or their current job until they get established and can con and transition completely into real estate or even um, agents who have part-time jobs. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but a good agent can prioritize. They can still juggle the schedule and they can still make you a top priority and work with your schedule. So I, I was mentioning my, uh, my real estate colleague here. I don't know the guy and just happened to be at Starbucks at the same time. But, you know, it seemed to me that he was a new agent, which kind of brings up another topic. And this is actually a hot button amongst uh, real estate agents, or I should say it's a hot button amongst experienced real estate agents. And that was part one of Interview with an Agent, a podcast that we originally published as one podcast. But thanks to your feedback, we've broken it into two podcasts. Be sure to listen to part two where we'll talk about, uh, we'll reveal that bias that agents have. Uh, I, I was, I'm surprised by this one. I don't get that. But uh, anyway, we'll talk about the bias that agents have. We'll talk about the pros and cons of working with a new agent. And should you work with a friend or family member? We'll also address a red flag you should be aware of. And we'll answer the question, do you need to like your agent? That plus pro tips on part two of Interview with an Agent. Thanks for listening to part one. I'm Mike Duran, and this has been Real Estate for the Rest of Us. Music